right, if you have your Bibles with you, open up to Romans 13 one more time. Today we're going to finish up this chapter. Been in it for several weeks now, but today we're going to wrap it up. I think God may have saved the best for last. Romans 13, picking up where we left off last week, we're going to start in verse 11 and read through the end. Let's all stand together as we do that. Romans 13, 11, Paul writes, Do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day. Not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to come now and take the truth contained in these words that we just read. God, open our eyes the way that only you can. Lord, I know there are people here this morning that you specifically had in mind when you laid this message on my heart. So, God, I thank you in advance, God, that today is going to be a defining moment for them. And, Lord, just draw us all closer to you. and Let us leave here more in love with you than we were when we came in and changed for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This passage that we just read is what some refer to as St. Augustine's text. Augustine was a man who had great influence over medieval Christianity in the 4th century. He's regarded as one of the most brilliant Christian writers of all time, famous for his commentaries on much of the New Testament and his incredible prayer life. Before his conversion at the age of 33, he lived a life of sinful indulgence and wild living. He was highly intellectual, teaching philosophy and rhetoric in schools all across southern Europe. His travels all over that part of the world exposed him to many different religions, and so he decided that he he needed to choose one for himself, and so he set out on uh, somewhat of a spiritual journey. He did have quite a bit of Christian influence in his life because his mother was a devout follower of Jesus, and she prayed every day for the salvation of her son. But Augustine considered Christianity an impossible life to live up to. Plus, he loved his drinking and his women too much to think that he would have to give those things up. And so he really wasn't interested in Christianity, but there was something about it that kept tugging at his heart. One day while sitting outside, he heard a child singing just one line of a song over and over again that simply said, pick it up and read it, pick it up and read it, pick it up and read it. And something inside of him jumped and he just knew that this had to be God speaking to him directly. And so he went and he got a Bible and he opened it up and was just going to read the very first thing that his eyes fell on. And what his eyes fell on was Romans 13, 11 through 14 that we just read. And right then the Holy Spirit convicted him and revealed the truth of the gospel. 
And he surrendered his life to Christ, and he immediately turned from his life of sin and debauchery. He repented and began following Jesus from then on. One issue that he struggled with a long time during his ministry was this whole thing about man's free will versus God's sovereignty. He studied Romans probably more than any other book in the New Testament, and he spent a lot of time on chapters 9 and 10 specifically and saw clearly there that it showed that salvation is by God's hand alone and predetermined by his will, but he also believed in mankind's free will. And so he studied for years trying to reconcile the two. Towards the end of his life, he finally came to the conviction and the conclusion that mankind was so wicked and our depravity ran so deep that there was no way possible for man to be moral or to choose salvation on his own, that our only hope was for a decisive act of God's grace by his will and his doing alone. And he was right. But it was this text that we're looking at this morning that God used as the decisive act of grace in Augustine's life. And my prayer all week has been that God would do the same for somebody in here today. So let's look at this closer. Verse 11 again, he says, do this. Do what? Well, everything he said before this was about taking the love that we have in Christ and living from that and extending that love to others. So he's saying, love others, owe nothing to anyone but to love them. Let every obligation, every duty, every job that you do be an act of love, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. So what he's saying is that understanding the times that we are living in should motivate us to love others and to think outside of ourselves for for the sake of others. Well, what time exactly is it that he's talking about? That's one of the things that we're going to look at today. The time that he's referring to is the time that you and I are living in right now. It is the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Jesus has come. Jesus is coming, and we live between the two comings. And let me tell you, when you understand this time and, and what Jesus has made this time that we are living in, you will realize what an incredibly exciting time it is to be a Christian today. We live in this overlap. The first point in your notes, if you're following along there in your guide, we live in the overlap of the age of sin and the age of righteousness. The overlap of the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. The overlap of mortal life and eternal life. What many Christians don't seem to realize is the right now aspect of the gospel, the right now that is available to us in Jesus. Too many seem to have their minds only on what is to come. We seem to have this attitude that we're just 
suffering through this old world, just trying to survive it until Jesus comes back one day and we finally get to go to heaven. People seem to be so focused on heaven one day that they are completely missing out on life right now and all that is available to us in Jesus. Because I'm telling you, it's not that one time period completely stops before the next has to begin. The truth is that there is now an overlap of the two that are going on, which means there are incredible things that has been made available to us in Christ. Now, I know that the times that we are living in now, if you look at everything that's going on in our country and the world around us, it has a lot of people uh, just full of fear and anxiety and wringing their hands. And it's easy to look at everything and think that everything is just getting worse and worse and sin is increasing. And so it's hard to look at this time that we are living in without, with much hope or opti- optimism at all. And I keep hearing people saying, well, I, you know, I, I would hate to bring a child into the world today. Well, that's because you don't understand what Jesus has made this time. And it is actually an incredible time to be alive today. And if you listen to what the Spirit is saying to us in this text today, I believe that you are going to leave here looking at these times with much greater hope and a greater excitement. And you just might do what Paul is calling for here. Have such a renewed perspective on the times that we are living in that it motivates you to love others and begin thinking outside of yourself. So I'm telling you, folks, we are not saved by God's grace just to suffer through this world and barely survive just waiting on heaven to get here. Because the thing is, at the heart of Christianity is the truth that when Jesus came to earth, when he stepped out onto the stage where God's story would be played out, the long-expected age to come had arrived. It was here in Jesus. When Jesus arrived on the scene, the kingdom of God arrived on the scene. Eternal life arrived on the scene. And look what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10. It's going to be up on the screen. In 1 Corinthians 10, he's talking about the time in Israel's history when they were disobedient and rebellious against God and suffered the consequences of all that. And then he says in verse 11, Now these things happened to them, talking about Israel, as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages has come. He's talking about you and me. We are the people on whom the end of the ages has come. This sinful age hasn't completely ended, but its end is absolutely inevitable. And it is winding down because Jesus ushered in the new age when he came. The next point, the juncture between this age and the one to come arrived in Jesus. I mean, if we think that we're just left here waiting around for the age to come that Jesus inaugurated, waiting on it to happen, we are missing out on a whole lot right now because I'm telling you, he already ushered it in. He brought it with him when he came here, and it is now just overlapping with this sinful age. I mean, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. 
Behold, the new has come. The new has arrived. It doesn't say we're going to wait on it. It says it has arrived now. Colossians 1.13, he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. It's not something that we are waiting on. It's something that we have now. It's something that happens at the moment of salvation. He saves us and pulls us out of the curses of the age of darkness and transfers us and places us in all the blessings that come from the age of righteousness. Jesus said in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. He didn't say it's going to come later. He says it is here now. It's at hand. You can touch it. It is a tangible thing that he brought with him. Yes, there is a not yet aspect of being a Christian. There awaits for those of us who put our complete trust in Christ, a time where there will be no more pain, no more sin, no more sickness and death. But there is also a right now aspect of being a Christian that God does not want us to be oblivious to and miss out on. Right now, there is the reign of righteousness. There is eternal life. There is new creation for those who put their trust in him. Those things are here and they are real, but they overlap with this fallen age of sin and pain and death. The fallen world, this sinful age contains brokenness. But in Christ, there is right now the opportunity to be made whole. In this age, there is sickness and and disease. But in Christ, there is right now the opportunity for healing. In this age of sin and darkness, there is bondage to sin. But there is in Christ right now. Not at some point in the future, the opportunity to be free, completely free of that bondage. In this age, there is separation from the Father. But in Christ, there is right now, not later, there is justification and fellowship with him. In this age, there is guilt and condemnation. But in Jesus, there is right now forgiveness and the removal of shame. In this age, Satan and his minions wage war over the souls of men, and they influence people to all sorts of wicked acts. But Jesus, right now, sits at the right hand of the Father where he has made his enemies a footstool under his feet, and he rules over his kingdom with absolute authority right now. Right now. Knowing this and being aware of it gives us the resources and the motivation to to not have to think of ourselves all the time and our own preservation and protection. And we're now free to think of others. And we're we're free and, and have the ability to live now according to the kingdom that Jesus brought here with us instead of the kingdom of this world. Next point, something you got to understand. Because we live in the overlap of two kingdoms... We have a choice as to which one we are going to submit ourselves to. Because it is an overlap, you can be a part of the kingdom of God and still submit yourself to the kingdom of this world. 
You can be a member of God's kingdom through your faith in Jesus, but be way more concerned about building your own kingdom. And when you do that, you're sleepwalking. And this is why Paul says here that this is the time, the time that we are living in, the time that Jesus has made because of his uh, coming to earth and his death and burial and resurrection and ascension. This is a time to be completely awake and not asleep. This is not something that you should be sleeping through right now. He says in verse 13, let us behave properly as in the day. The day is when people are awake. Most people, they sleep at night. More sinning and wild living is done during the day, during night than it is during the day. And so he says, lay aside the deeds of darkness. You can lay them aside now because the light has come in Jesus. He has brought the day with him. We, we don't have to submit to the darkness anymore. And we're not waiting on the day to come when Jesus returns. The day has already dawned when he came. And it is just getting brighter and brighter and brighter. You know, one of the sickest feelings in the world is when you wake up realizing that you just slept right through something, right? Especially if what you just slept through is your alarm that was supposed to have woken you up 30 minutes ago. School's finally coming to an end now, and I know many of you students, you teenagers here, if I were to ask you what you are looking forward to the most about your summer break, most of you are going to tell me, sleeping in. (laughs) I mean, ever since August, you've had to get up a whole lot earlier than you would want to, and now you finally get a chance to sleep in. And some of you are going to take full advantage of that, and you'll sleep all the way to 10 o'clock in the morning which for some of you, that's going to be pretty early still. You may sleep till lunchtime. I've got teenage girls in my house, so I know how that goes. But that's a lot of daytime to not be a part of. And I know many of you are perfectly fine with that. I mean, you'd rather have your sleep, and that's okay. I mean, personally, I wouldn't be able to stand that. If I sleep past 7 o'clock in the morning, I feel like I've wasted half the day. I mean, I couldn't even do that when I was a teenager, but some of you, that's your thing, and and that's fine. But I would submit to you that much of the American church today is sleeping right through the greatest time in history, like teenagers on summer break. And they are sleeping right through some of the most incredible things that has been made available to us in Jesus. Everything in this world that does not awaken more faith in Jesus puts you to sleep. Entertainment-saturated people who do not treasure Christ above all are like skydivers without a parachute who think that the wind passing by them at 120 miles an hour is the ultimate thrill of being alive when in reality it is the sign that you are headed for imminent death. The glitz and glamour and skin and swagger and might and success and achievement of this sinful age will lull you to sleep and blind you to the incredible realities of what has been made available in Jesus. And they can make you think that you are fully awake and fully alive when in reality you are just sleepwalking at best and spiritually dead 
at worst. And there are some of you here today, and you know that I've just described you to a T. You don't treasure Christ above all. You treasure your entertainment and your status, your achievements and your need to fit in above all. Instead of being in the world and not of the world like Jesus said that we should be, which is a a nod to this overlap, you may be in the church, but you're not of the kingdom. You're kingdom-minded, all right. You're just mindful of your own kingdom instead of God's. You're so caught up in building and preserving your own that it's lulled you to sleep and you're now completely oblivious to God's. And those of you whom I just described, you're going to fall into one of two categories. There are some of you who will say, yeah, that's me. But you just don't care. You're perfectly content with your spiritual sleep. Say ignorance is bliss and you're just blissful as you can be. Being the ruler of your own kingdom. You don't want to change. And so you're going to leave here today no different at all than you were when you came in here. My heart breaks for you. And I would say good luck with that. Because that's all you've got. But then there are those of you whom God gave me this message this morning specifically for. You know I described you. You know that it just seems like you have been spiritually asleep for a while. And you're sick of it. At one time you used to be so on fire for the Lord. But circumstances and the broken of this world that overlaps with the perfect of God's. You have allowed to suppress that fire to where it's. Nothing more than just a smoldering coal now, and you don't know how to get it lit again. Now you feel further away from God than you ever thought was even possible, but you want that fire back. I'm here to announce some good news to you this morning, that it doesn't have to be that way any longer. That God wants to reignite that fire in you once again. And to wake you up from the sleep that you have been in. And if that's your desire, then I want you to really pay attention to what I'm about to show you next. Turn over to Luke chapter 18. I'd been working on this message earlier in the week and thought I was pretty much had it all wrapped up and done. And Wednesday night when we had our worship service in here, I opened up my Bible during the worship and began reading and felt the Lord was drawing me here to Luke. And what I read here seemed to jump right off of the page. And I realized that he was giving me a key, a very key part of this message this morning. Luke 18, let's start with verse 28. 
Peter said, Behold, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. So right there in verse verse 30, Jesus alludes to this overlap here. He says, You'll receive eternal life in this age and in the one to come. Eternal life in him is available to us, even in this age of sin and decay, you will have it here, but then carry it with you and have it forever in the age to come. But that's not the main point I wanted to point out here. Let's read on. Verse 31 says, Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and mistreated and spit on. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. The disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. Now, Jesus doesn't beat around the bush here or use metaphorical language like he uh, had done sometimes when he's talking to them. I mean, he comes right out and tells them exactly what is going to happen with specific detail. This is not like John's account where Jesus was talking about what was going to happen and said things like, in a vague way, like, I'm going away for a while, and where I'm going, you can't come right now, but you will later, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. No, I mean, he came right out and said it plainly and clearly. We are going to Jerusalem to fulfill prophecy, and when we get there, I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be mistreated and spit on, I'm even going to be scourged, and then they're going to kill me. Then three days later, I'm going to come back to life. Now, normally, this would have been incredibly shocking news to them. And you would think that they would have responded to it in some way. I mean, at the very least, you would think that they would say something like, "Well, well, Jesus, how about we don't go to Jerusalem then? But they didn't. They didn't respond in anything. They just, they're... Stood there looking dumb, I can just imagine. I mean, he says this, and there's the, okay, and just go on. I mean, he, he would have been better off explaining astrophysics to a group of kindergartners. This just goes completely over their heads. It, it says that the meaning was hidden from them. How could they be so oblivious to something that was so plainly Stated. I mean, it kind of sounds like they were sleepwalking, doesn't it? They were, at least from a spiritual standpoint. You see, because the climax of history had not yet happened, they still didn't have the ability to see things from his perspective. They didn't have the ability to grasp truth in the things of God Because Jesus hadn't yet made that possible through his death and resurrection. In order to understand what Jesus did, it has to be revealed by the Holy Spirit. That understanding has to be given by God himself. We don't just come up with it on our own. It is too big and too beyond our finite ability 
to be able to figure out and understand it on our own. Last point in your notes. We cannot wake ourselves up from sleep. We have to be woken up. Now look what the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write next. This is interesting. Starting in verse 35. As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. So Jesus tells the disciples something in plain English, or Aramaic in this case. But they don't get it because the meaning is hidden from them. And then right after that, we have the story of Jesus healing this blind man. Is it just a random coincidence that these two stories were put next to each other like that? I don't think so. Because there's nothing in God's word that's just random and coincidence. There's a purpose to everything. And I believe that the Holy Spirit led Luke to record this incident next to illustrate just how one comes to the knowledge of Christ, the understanding of truth, how one goes from sleepwalking to being fully awake. See, the disciples were just as incapable of seeing the truth that Jesus was presenting them as this blind man was of being able to see on his own, of being able to make himself see. In order for him to see, Jesus had to heal him. In order for us to be able to grasp the truth of God, Jesus has to reveal it through the Holy Spirit. There's something in this that really jumped out at me when I read it at first. When Jesus asked the man what he wanted, he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight which tells us that this, he hadn't been blind his whole life. There was a time in this man's life where he could see just fine. So he says, I want to regain my sight. In other words, Jesus, I want to be able to see again. Well, what's the significance of that? Disciples, they couldn't see the truth. They couldn't see what Jesus was telling them because they were still living under the curse of the fall and the effects of that original sin. They couldn't see things that the way God does, but there was a time when man could. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were able to see things the way God did. They were able to process life and everything around them from his perspective. They lived in the constant revelation of truth. We talked about this just a few weeks ago, that when they sin. And rebelled against God. Genesis 3, 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Meaning that their, their natural, their fallen eyes were open. And their spiritual eyes were shut. They now had to essentially sleepwalk through life. Because they no longer had the revelation of truth. And they were cut off from the reality of the kingdom. 
Jesus came to restore what was lost in the garden. One of those being our ability to see truth and to process life from God's perspective. Jesus came to restore our sight. I mean, it wasn't until the Holy Spirit came that it finally clicked with the disciples and they understood everything that Jesus had done. And then another thing that jumped out at me here was what Jesus said to Bartimaeus. I mean, he asked him specifically, what do you want me to do for you? I mean, I don't know what it is about that, but obviously nobody didn't know what was wrong with him. I mean, it's obvious he was blind. It wasn't like Jesus didn't know what this man wanted, but for some reason he wanted him to say it for himself. I really don't know what all that is about. But I do know this, that there are some of you who are here today that have felt like you've been asleep, like I was just talking about earlier. Felt like you've been asleep for whatever reason, because either you have never fully given your life to Christ in the first place, or you've allowed the things of this world to lull you into sleep and to douse that fire that used to burn bright for the Lord in you. Whatever the reason for it, I'm telling you that Jesus is here in this place this morning and he's saying to you, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want? Do you want me to relight that fire in you? Do you want me to awaken you from the spiritual stupor that you have been living in for so long? Are you really sick and tired of that? What do you want? It says that Jesus stopped and he commanded the man to be brought to him. Bartimaeus got up from where he was sitting and he came to Jesus. If you can relate to him this morning, I'm going to close in prayer in just a minute. And if you feel the Lord speaking to you, then I want you to do what Bartimaeus did here. And I want you to get up from where you are sitting and come down here and either get one of our leaders that will be on these front rows to pray with you or just to get alone with God yourself. But I'm telling you, he has presented an incredible opportunity to you this morning. I mean, for the creator of all that is to ask What do you want? Do you understand how huge that is? I mean, forget rubbing a lamp and getting three wishes from a genie. I mean, this is the creator of all going, what do you want? (laughs) Jesus said, if you ask anything of the Father in my name, I'll give it. That means anything that we're asking that's lined up with his will. I'm telling you, it's his will that you be on fire for him and not cold. It's his will for you to see again and to wake up from the sleep that you have been in. This can be a defining moment for somebody. So I'm going to pray. And if you have an answer for Jesus' question as to what do you want, I want you to come down here and let him do that in you. Let's pray.
Lord, you are so awesome, so incredible. God, your love just blows me away that you love us too much to leave us where we are. You love us too much to be oblivious to the incredible things that you have made available to us in Jesus. And you want us so bad to see it. It's like a father. Like a good father can't wait for Christmas morning for his kids to be able to see the gifts that he has given them. God, I know you want us just as bad, even more so, to be able to see the treasures and the incredible gifts that we have in your Son. So, Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to come and open our eyes to those things. God, I pray for those whose fire for you has seemed to go out, that you would reignite that again. Those that have just been sleepwalking through life, just waiting on something better to get here. God, I pray that you would wake them up and make them realize what all they have right now. The greatest things. God, I've done all there is for me to do this morning, which is just give the words that I believe you have given me. I can't open anybody's eyes. I can't change a man's heart. I can't rekindle a fire. Only you can do that. So I'm asking you now in the mighty and the matchless name of Jesus to let your will be done in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives this morning. It's in your glorious name above all names we pray. Amen.